Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 19? If you're new, uh, welcome. If you're wondering where everyone is, our ladies are at the retreat up in Wisconsin, so they should be getting off in about an hour and coming on home. So uh, we, I got to run home and clean the house. Um, no, I kept it clean. But uh, yeah, so they'll be back. And uh, but, uh, we will continue on in our study through the Gospel of John. And uh, this morning we find ourselves in chapter 19. And uh, let's back up a little bit to verse 14 to get a kind of a running start in today's uh, study. John 19, verse 14, now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Pilate did, behold your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. Now, I want to bring in something that Mark shares in his gospel that John does not mention. And I'll just read it to you. You don't really have to turn to it. It's Mark 15, verses 21 and 22. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Now, I realize this isn't really in our John study, but I really felt the Holy Spirit wanted us to kind of bring it in and talk about it this morning. And as I'm reading this story, I try to put myself in this man's shoes, Simon, right? It's interesting how a person's life can change when they least expect it. They get up one morning and start the day like they have every other day of their adult life. And suddenly something happens that changes them in a way, well, that they never could have imagined. And this was the testimony of a man named Simon who lived in Cyrene, a city in North Africa, in what is now the country of Libya. Simon was a common Jewish name. And I really believe he was Jewish. Why was he in Jerusalem? In all probability, he was there as a pilgrim who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. What Simon didn't or couldn't have known when he got up that morning was how that before the day was done, he was not going to be the same man. Something was going to happen that day that would forever change him, profoundly and irreversibly. You see, his path that day was going to intersect with the path of another man, a man he probably never heard of, a man named Jesus of Nazareth. It would happen suddenly, as it often does, and without warning. But the end result would be that Simon's life would be totally transformed. Now, let me give you a little background to set up this message. And I was telling First Service that if I was going to make a movie I was a filmmaker and I was going to make a movie about this incident. I would have to take some art artistic license. I would have to, to embellish a little bit to kind of fill in some of the things the Bible doesn't say. I'm going to do that. I'm going to tell you up front. These are things I think could have very well have happened that day. The Bible is quiet on a lot of what I'm going to bring out, although the conclusions I'm going to come to you see are absolutely biblical. All right? So just bear with me. Okay, if you're going looking at Mark going, well, that's not in the Bible. I'm embellishing a little bit for this, taking a little artistic license, okay? Not violating the Word of God at all, okay? But let me give you a little background. As I just said, Simon was probably a Jew who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Now, it was the dream of every Jew who lived far from Jerusalem. Uh, to be able to go to Jerusalem once during their lifetime to observe the Passover. And... He had probably scraped and saved for many years to make this trip. This was a once-in-a-lifetime trip for many Jews that lived North Africa and different parts of the known world, not close to the Holy Land, okay? 
And I'm sure that Simon had scraped and saved for many years so that he could be in Jerusalem just one time for the Passover trip of a lifetime. And while he was there, you know, looking at the sites, remember, he's looking at things that he had never seen before. Okay, things he had read about, others had told him about, but now he's there for himself walking around like a kid, you know, in a big toy shop a few days from Christmas, right? I mean, he was really just taking in the sights. And I think he was just overwhelmed at what he was taught, but now he was seeing with his own eyes, here it is, Jerusalem. I can't believe I'm here, right? That was how I was the first time I went. Amazing, right? Um, but while he was there taking in the sights, I think what probably happened was he, he uh, suddenly heard a commotion. And when he turned to see what was going on, he saw a crowd that was leading, uh, excuse me, they saw a crowd, and leading the crowd was a Roman soldier holding a placard which read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. You see, whenever a person was condemned to die by crucifixion, the Roman soldiers would always make a procession where they would... Um, they would make a procession to where uh, the execution was going to take place. Making up this procession, there would always be four Roman soldiers, one in front holding the sign, which had on it the crimes uh, that the guilty person uh, had committed. In Jesus' case, uh, they convicted him, although it was absolutely untrue, convicted him of being uh, an insurrectionist, one who led, uh, was going to lead an insurrection, uh, calling himself king of the Jews. And so you had one soldier in front holding the sign, two on either side of the prisoner was, was uh, carrying the cross, and then one soldier behind the prisoner. That was how Rome did it. That was the formation, if you will, of soldiers that would uh, take a uh, condemned criminal to where the execution was being held. And it wasn't always at the same exact location. This is where Jesus, we'll have more to say about that next time. I think you'll find it interesting. But... Um, these soldiers would purposely take a, a circuitous route. They would want to go winding through the various streets of the city because the object was to put this criminal on display. Why? Because they, they wanted as many people to see the criminal, see what he was charged with, see the punishment that was going to be coming to him very shortly, carrying a cross, this was all designed that as many people as possible could see this so that it would strike fear into the hearts of all. You better not mess with Rome. You better not mess with Rome. This is how we deal with criminals in Rome, those convicted of a capital offense. And um, it was by design to strike fear in the hearts of others that caused them to think twice before going against Rome, Roman law, and so on. No doubt by this point, you have to understand now, you have to draw on all we have talked about over the last few months to bring us to this point. No doubt by this point, Jesus was already physically drained. I mean, remember, he had been up all night, all night. Furthermore, he had been beaten unmercifully earlier that morning, first of all, by the temple guards who were under uh, the high priest's jurisdiction or uh, authority, which would have been Caiaphas, the high priest, they beat Jesus pretty badly. And then when he was handed over to Pilate, eventually his soldiers beat him to a pulp. And then you take into consideration the loss of blood that he no doubt endured uh, because of the scourging, and you get the picture that Jesus the man, not Jesus God, but Jesus the man, his physical man could not take any more. He was more than we could even realize. Uh, what he was experiencing that morning uh, was absolutely incredible. And all of this combined to rob him of his strength so that it wasn't physically possible, again, for Jesus the man to drag that 150-pound to 200-pound cross up a steep walkway, or a steep road, um, to Golgotha or Mount Calvary. And so, again, I just envisioned Simon there in town, and he's kind of taken in the sights, when all of a sudden, he hears this commotion. He turns and sees this procession, right? Soldiers marching. 
one carrying a sign, Jesus of, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. He no doubt saw Jesus stumble under the weight of his cross, probably saw him fall to the ground altogether. And when Jesus could no longer carry his cross, he, Simon, suddenly felt one of the soldiers lay the flat part of his sword on Simon's shoulder. Everybody knew what that meant. Because Roman law stated that if a soldier laid the flat part of his sword on your shoulder, he could officially press you into service to the Roman government. He could officially uh, enlist you for a time as a servant of the Roman government. And uh, he could, they could do that to either uh, cause you to carry uh, a soldier's gear for a mile, or in this case, a condemned criminal's cross. And guys, that was Roman law. You couldn't argue with it. And you couldn't refuse to do it. And it was upon this law that Jesus in Matthew 5.41 said, If they compel you to go one mile, go two. In other words, <clears throat> you must go one mile by compulsion. That's the law. Go a second mile for compassion. To show this Roman soldier you're different. That you really do care about him. The first mile is for law. second mile, do it for love. So that these soldiers who need Christ, hardened guys, but they need Christ. Show them you're different. Show them that you'll go the extra mile, Jesus was saying, that you might gain a witness to them in, in their hearts and so on. And so this Simon of Cyrene was compelled to carry the cross of Christ, a condemned criminal. Think about the humiliation, right? This was a tremendous imposition, to say the least, for a guy on pilgrimage. Talk, talk about taking the edge off your spiritual zeal, right? You're there to have a, a holy experience. And all of a sudden, you're being forced to carry some condemned criminal's cross. How humiliating. And at that moment, I would imagine Simon must have bitterly resented it. He must have bitterly hated those soldiers and this criminal that he was being forced to carry his cross. And I think, and again, I have no biblical justification for this, but I think it was probably his intention when he got to Golgotha to fling that cross on the ground and leave as quickly as possible so he could resume you know, his life, get back to what he wanted to do. Remember, he's on vacation, basically. However, I don't think, I don't think that's what happened. I believe he stayed. I believe he got saved that day, and I'll tell you why in a moment. And you know what? If you're going to get saved, it usually doesn't happen in a couple minutes' time. And I think he, he spent time there because he wanted to, but he spent time. With, he didn't throw the cross down and quickly leave. Why do I think he stayed? What, what, what motivated him to stay? First of all, I think it's very important um, to understand that. Interesting, very interesting. That Simon had come to Jerusalem to celebrate, celebrate the Passover and wound up meeting the Passover lamb. This was a meeting Simon hadn't planned on, but as his path crossed with Jesus' path, his life would be forever changed. We talk about crossroads in life, right? One author said one time, all of life is man at the crossroads. That's probably true to a big degree. Every day we're faced with choices, some of them bigger than others, some of them profound, life-changing. But our whole life is, consists of a series of standing at the crossroads. What am I going to do? This, guys, was the ultimate crossroad experience, and I'm calling it C-R-O-S-S hyphen R-O-A-D, the ultimate crossroad. In many ways, guys, I think the Holy Spirit is holding up Simon. is an illustration for all of us. Uh, I challenge you to see yourself in Simon as we continue. See yourself in Simon. I believe the Holy Spirit is holding up Simon as an illustration of how a person's life can change suddenly when it interacts with Jesus, when they least expect it. And at that moment in, in history, the moment your life intersects with Jesus, and it could be somebody at work, or you're out there doing something, you're shopping, or you've got a project you're working on, and some person walks over and hands you a track. You look at it and go, I don't have time for this baloney. But you stiff it, tuck it in your pocket, 
maybe later on that evening you remember you had, had a track in your pocket, you pull it out, start reading it, and it completely changes your life. And I think at the moment our lives, a person's life first intersects with Jesus. I think the Holy Spirit at that moment is compelling them, not forcing them, but strongly compelling them. This is your moment. This is why you were born for this moment. Don't let it pass. Don't, you know, squander it away because you're busy with some project that means nothing in the light of eternity. The Holy Spirit, God Almighty, who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, is out looking for us. He's the good shepherd that is out looking for lost sheep. People say, I found Jesus. You didn't find Jesus. He wasn't lost. He found you and me. And at the moment where our lives really connect with Jesus, and hear, the, hear this. People say, oh, I come in contact with Jesus every week. I go to church. Yeah, but your life hasn't changed at all. You know, you can come in contact with Jesus like a glancing blow, right? Like the woman who had the issue of blood for 12 years. And she thought to herself, if I can only touch the hem of his garment, I'll be, I'll be healed, right? And so she locates where Jesus was, what town he was in. And she happens to find him surrounded by people everywhere. And she makes her way through the crowd, trying to fight to get to Jesus, falls on her feet, reaches out and touches his robe, and immediately she's healed. Jesus stops and makes somewhat of a comical statement. Who touched me? His disciples said, Lord, who hasn't touched you? The crowd is thronging you on every side. You say, who touched me? No, no, her touch was, this touch was different. I felt healing power leave me. And here she was. The crowd opened up, and here's this woman, frail, terrified, like she had done something wrong. He said, don't be afraid. You haven't done anything wrong. You've done something very right. You see, guys, there's a lot of people that come in contact with Jesus and receive nothing from him. Why? There's no faith involved. Go to church. Let's get it over. Uh, network a little bit. Maybe I can sell some product to these people. A lot of people brush elbows with Jesus, quote-unquote, at church. It's only those who reach out and touch him by faith that receive anything from him. And I'm thinking of salvation first and foremost. It's interesting what Mark says in his gospel about Simon. And by the way, when a person uh, comes in contact with Jesus, and I'm not talking about a glancing thing. I'm talking about a head-on collision, right? You know, it's one thing if you... If you, a glancing blow is one thing, right? A head-on collision, that's quite a different thing. Paul, the uh, Saul of Tarsus, uh, had a head-on collision with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And that changed his life forever. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. And we've all been there. Our lives were going 100 miles an hour in one direction, like Saul of Tarsus, right? And all of us doing our thing, living our lives, whatever we were building our kingdom, whatever we were doing, and all of a sudden, we ran right into a brick wall named Jesus Christ who knocked us to our knees, who then picked us up, spun us around, and shot us back out 100 miles an hour in the opposite direction. That's a head-on collision I'm talking about. Not a glancing blow where a person comes to church, brushes up with Jesus a little bit, and goes out, and it's not, they're not changed at all. Their lives are still basically the same. Now, Mark tells us something interesting in his gospel, chapter 15, verse 21. He says that Simon was coming out of the country and passing by. Coming out of the, in other words, he had a destination. He had a plan. He was going somewhere, right? I mean, this is the idea of that you're, you have somewhere to go. You have a plan. My, my pastor used to say how that, uh, that um, he could walk from one end of the mall in his town to the other end in about three minutes. He said, I took my wife all day. I had a plan. I was going somewhere. I needed a pair of shoes or something. And she was meandering. She really had no purpose. She just wanted to be in the mall. 
looking at stuff and looking at the windows and you know, that kind of nothing wrong with that, ladies. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. That was Simon. Simon was going somewhere. He had a plan. It's interesting, interesting to me how Simon was going about his business not knowing how dramatically his life was about to change when he suddenly was introduced, quote-unquote, to Jesus. This event was, was to become the spiritual turning point of Simon's life. Somebody once said, it's interesting how large doors can swing on relatively small hinges. And the point was, often our lives, our entire lives, can pivot. God can pivot them on seemingly small, insignificant events, like somebody handing you a track or something like that. So may we all have our testimonies, right? We all can bear witness to this in some way, shape, or form. Now let me just say this to you. No one can bear the cross of Christ without experiencing a radical change in the direction of their life. Simon's desires at that moment and his plans had to be denied for Jesus' sake, but bearing the cross always means saying no to self and yes to him. It's always and it always has and always will mean a dramatic change of plans. A new direction in a person's life whose life intersects with Jesus where they take up his cross, his cross. When Jesus said, if you don't take up your cross and follow me, you can't be one of my disciples. Guys, his cro uh, my cross is his cross. People say, oh, my cross in life is my mother-in-law. Oh, she's such a cross. Well, I don't know your mother-in-law. I'm sure she's a delightful woman. But she's not your cross if you're a Christian. I mean, the cross is Jesus' cross, right? That's the cross we're talking about. And I'll tell you what, when you really come in contact with Jesus and really start to take up his cross, your life but can't help but change. It, it can't help but change from the way it was to something completely brand new. Um, when you take up your cross and follow Jesus, to where he's going, and he's always leading us to Mount Calvary. He's always leading us to the place where we are going to die to self and be crucified. It always results in a life change. When people come to church and their lives don't really change, and I realize we're all a work in progress. God bless you. I'm not putting anybody down because you're not where somebody else is when they've been Christians for 10 years, and you just got to say, I'm not putting that down. It's a growing process. I get that. But there are people who have been coming to church for 20, 30, or more years who have never really changed. And I have to question whether they've really had an encounter with Jesus. Because I know what my life was like before and after I received Christ. And I'm sure you would say the same thing. When I think back, and I, was, I became a Christian pretty early in life, around, I don't know, 23 or so, 24. Um, as I look back, on my life before I received Christ as my Savior, I honestly look at that guy and say, I don't know who he is. I'm not that guy anymore. I mean, right? I mean, how could you still be the same person once you've really had an encounter with Jesus where the Holy, you've received him into your heart, the Holy Spirit has moved in, and now as Paul said, you are a new creation, right? Old things have passed away. Everything is new. Look, before I got saved, I was a typical young guy doing my thing, you know, and a lot of stuff I'm not proud of and I don't want to talk about. But I was living for me. I was selfish and self-focused, and a lot of folks were just there to help me get where I wanted to go. Met a wonderful gal. We got engaged, and I thought, well, maybe this is a good time to start a business, you know getting married, you don't want to make a lot of money. So one of the options I thought about was opening up a liquor store. God really changes people, doesn't he? When I bought my townhouse, we were engaged and still a bachelor. So as I walked into this little townhouse, which we still live in, by the way, 
First thing I thought, hey, that'd be a great place for a bar. Because, you know, young guys, we like to have a party once in a while and have the guys over watch the game, have a few drinks, right? And then I accepted Christ. Then I ran into a brick wall named Jesus Christ. And wow, did my life change. Am I perfect? Of course not. Am I all that I want to be? No, not at all. Am I still what I once was? Absolutely not. You know, Jesus said, well, let me just say this. And even though Simon only carried Jesus Christ literally for an hour, maybe two at the most that day, he wound up carrying the cross figuratively for the rest of his life. Jesus said that before we take up the cross and seek to follow him, we must count the cost. It begs the question, what has it cost you and me to carry our crosses for him? When James Calvert, the Methodist missionary, went out to cannibal Fiji with the message of the gospel in the, in the 1800s, the captain of the ship um, in which he traveled sought to dissuade him. The captain said to him, you will risk your life and all those with you if you go among such savages, he said. These were cannibals. To which Calvert pricelessly responded, he said, we died before we came here. That's a spirit-filled man. I was talking to a native missionary who lived in India years ago. And uh, he said that they train all their young converts, they're all missionaries, and they train them that when they go to a new village with the gospel, they are to first stop outside the village. And when I say village, he says some of these Villages are 20 million people. Okay, they're cities. But the first thing that they are to do is stop outside the village, dig their grave. Because it will reinforce in their thinking, I probably won't live through this. But they're counting the cost, and they do it anyways. In China, believers are martyred all the time for their faith in Christ. And from what I understand, the song that the Chinese believers love to sing in the face of this kind of persecution and martyrdom, here's what they sing as they're dying, how glorious it is to die for Jesus. Well, that sounds weird. If you're an unsaved person, sure does. If you're a carnal Christian, yeah, I can see that. It doesn't sound weird to a spirit-filled child of God because that's exactly the heart of Jesus who puts that heart in us the moment we get saved. In fact, we're talking about believers in China. From what I understand, a person can't even be a pastor of an underground church in China until they have uh, fulfilled two requirements. First of all, they have to be in prison for preaching the gospel publicly, and then while in prison, they have to preach and start a church there in prison among the Chinese uh, you know, um, criminals. And then if they are released, many of them don't get released, they get eventually killed. But if they are released, only then can they be ordained as a pastor of an underground church in China. So let me again ask the question, what has it cost us in America to follow Jesus? And have we paid whatever it's cost us, have we paid that price with joy? Now, I have been noticing how that is getting harder and harder to be a Christian in America without suffering some kind of persecution. More and more I'm hearing stories of people that are standing up for Christ and losing their jobs. I just heard about a um, high school football coach, Christian guy, who every game, after the game, he would kneel at the 50-yard line and he would thank God whether they won or lost. And sometimes he was joined by other players, some of his players, sometimes other players on the other team would even join in, or sometimes it was just himself. Finally, some new person uh, who was hired on saw this and complained about it. And this coach was threatened. He had been a coach for, I don't know, 25 years there. He was threatened with losing his job if he didn't stop praying at, after the game. Well, the first time, the next game, he capitulated and didn't pray. And he felt so convicted about that, he went home, knelt on his 
floor and confessed his sin to God and said, forgive me for not standing up for you. The next game, he started praying again. And after a couple more games, he was fired. He counted the cost. And he was not going to back down. He was going to be a witness no matter what. I think Simon stayed. I don't think he threw the cross down and, and, and left in a huff. I think he stayed. Why do I think he stayed when he got to Mount Calvary? Why didn't he leave to carry out his plans and his goals and everything else? Well, I personally believe it was because Jesus had talked with him. How could you carry a man's crosses walking right next to you for an hour, we'll say, without striking up a conversation? I can imagine Simon looked over at this man, beaten beyond recognition. Barely walk, he's stumbling, he's got loss of blood, everything. And, 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 and Simon knows, of course, he's been condemned to death. I can't imagine Simon didn't look over and say, what, what, what are you guilty of? What do they charge you with? And I believe Jesus told him. I can't imagine Jesus wouldn't have spoken to Simon at that time. I believe Jesus told him what he was charged with, that he was innocent, but that doesn't matter because he had come to die. He was, in fact, the Jewish Messiah. I think Simon was Jewish. Jesus told him that he was the Jewish Messiah, no doubt, and why he had come into the world. I believe that Jesus told him that even as Simon had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, that at that very moment, Jesus, the true Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, was on his way to die so that the judgment upon all of us through the blood of Christ would, listen, pass over us. That's what Passover was all about. How that if the Jewish people through the blood of the lamb put that blood on the doorpost and lintel of their houses by faith, the angel of death would pass over them. Judgment would not touch those in that house. And the same is true for us. That was a foreshadowing, right? That was an illustration. How that if we take the blood of the true Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, and apply it to the doorpost and lintel of our hearts by faith, it will cause the judgment of God to pass over us. We will never come into condemnation, condemnation we will only know the blessings of God in heaven for all eternity. Blessings upon guilty sinners forgiven because they put their faith in Jesus as their Savior. I mean, guys, how could? How could Simon leave after all of that? How could he go back to his own plans after that revelation? I mean, when a person truly has an encounter with the living Christ, he or she can never go back to the way things were. They can never leave the presence of Jesus and go back to their own lives. It's impossible. Remember, as Jesus chased away a bunch of would-be disciples in John chapter 6 by telling them what was really involved in them being his disciples, and after a whole bunch of them left, Jesus then turns to the twelve and says, will you also leave? And Peter, one of the few times he didn't have his foot in his mouth, here he shines. Spoke for all true disciples when he said, Lord, where else can we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. I mean, when you really know Jesus, I was telling for service that I could no more go back to the old life than I could play center in the NBA. That ain't happening. Just like it ain't happening that I would ever go back to the old life. And I've said this before, you have to take my word for it. It's in my heart, and I know it's how I feel. If for some reason, and it would never happen, but if for some reason, hypothetically, a company offered me, I don't know, several hundred thousand dollars to be something in that company, a secular company, which is not wrong, I'm not saying folks work for secular companies, that's bad, no. But for a man called into ministry, I wouldn't take that job. My heart wouldn't be in it. You know, I left, I had a, had a blue-collar job I, out of high school. I, I got it and worked there eight years before I got saved. 
Actually, I got saved a little before that, but the eight years before we started the church. And uh, just a blue-collar guy, working overtime. I remember I, I made almost like 45 grand back in 81. Now, that was good money back in 81, right? And I left that to take a job here at Calvary. Not a job, it was a calling. Making $1,000 a month. So you have 45 divided by 12, whatever that was a month. I left all that. And I remember my wife and I praying because I had to give them the decision. They were offering voluntary layoffs. You could, you could quit of your own free will. And they give you a little severance package. It wasn't much. Because they were downsizing. They eventually left the area. Texaco was a gasoline company. They're in the West Coast, I think, now. But I had to give them a... Uh, an answer by the next day. We've been praying about it, and so boss said, look, I need an answer tomorrow. What do you want to do? Take the layoff or keep working? So we fasted. We went in different parts of the house and prayed. And I remember how the Lord spoke to me. And he said, Lord, I said, Lord, if you want me to sell the house, because it's just a little townhouse, I'd be happy to do that. But I couldn't rent an apartment for less than what we're paying out. We got in at a good time. Our mortgage payment was a lot less than rent would be for an apartment. And I, but I was, I was scared. I, I, I was a young Christian. I was scared. And the Lord spoke to me. He spoke to me very clearly. He said, Phil, if you're, look, if you're looking from a pro, for a promise from me that I will keep you at the same economic strata you're in right now, I won't make you that promise. But I will promise you I will always take care of you and your family. You'll always have enough to eat. You'll always have a place to stay. I said, Lord, that's good enough for me. Based on that revelation, I quit the next day. And then God led us to start the church. And it's been something. I mean, but... When God calls you, he will always equip you. He'll always take care of you. Don't live at the level of the physical, Jesus said. That's how unbelievers live. They worry about what they're going to eat, what they're going to wear, where they're going to live. You live at the level of the Spirit and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And everything else you need in the, on the physical level, will I'll take care of, God says. That's a promise from our, from our God, right? Now, guys, again, I'm going to wrap this up. Uh, we have good reason to believe. I, I, I think we have good reason to believe that Simon trusted in Jesus as his Savior that day and went home and led his whole family to the Lord. He said, now, now you're pushing it. How do you know that? All right, hang on. Hang on. I do believe he got saved that day. And you know what? When you get saved, who are the first people you want to share Jesus with? Your family, right? Your immediate family. Some of us were a little heavy-handed. We we pushed it. We harangued. I had one mom who wanted to meet with me. Her son got saved, and she he was creating all kinds of havoc in the house. What kind of a church is this? You know, I would, I need to see you, Pat. Oh, I okay. So they both came in. You know, I said, well, he might be a little overzealous, ma'am, but he's truly gotten saved. His life is different. He wants you to be saved too. And we talk, and they eventually start coming to the church and got saved too. But you know what I'm saying? I think that he got saved, and I think he went home, and he witnessed to his whole family, and they all got saved. I believe this man was so transformed by the cross of Christ that the blessings of the cross overflowed onto his whole family. Now, he is described in Mark's gospel as the father of, of Alexander and Rufus. You saw it there? Simon and his family must have been so well known by the time Mark wrote his gospel. This is going out several years in the future. But Simon and his family must have been so well known to the Christians Mark was addressing his gospel to in particular. He had a target audience. Many believed that Mark was the first gospel written and the target audience was believers in Rome. Paul eventually would write to those same believers himself. But many believe that Mark's was the first gospel written 
and it was written to believers living in Rome, and these two were so well known. All you had to do was refer to them simply mentioning Simon's sons as, you know, you know, this Simon I'm talking about, that's the father of Alexander and Rufus. Oh, Alexander and Rufus. That Simon? They all knew him. They all knew the family. In fact, if you look at the closing benediction of Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 16, verse 13, we read, Paul writing, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. She's my mom too. Rufus was such a strong Christian that Paul singles him out and his mother singles them out for special mention. In fact, so dear was his mother, Rufus's mom, Simon's wife, to Paul that he referred to her as his own mother. Guys, Simon's encounter with Jesus on the road to Calvary not only saved him, but also his wife and his two sons and Lord knows how many else. What a home this must have been, by the way. What a home this must have been once Jesus invaded that darkness and brought his marvelous light. What a marriage, what a family must have resulted from his encounter with Jesus on that road so many years earlier. Guys, let me just say this as we wind this down. The only answer to the problem, today the only answer to the problems in the home is cross-bearing. Cross-bearing. Bearing the cross. Only when the power of the cross permeates the relationships of a husband and wife, of parents and their children, is there going to be authority, stability, and security in the home. And when I talk about the power of the cross, I am talking about God's sacrificial love being manifested through self-denial. Sacrificial love putting others first, starting with those closest to you, your spouse, your children, etc. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 24? If anyone desires to come after me, let him, what? Deny himself. That is the heart of sacrificial love, God's love. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Guys, in Acts chapter 13, verse 1, you have to turn to it. There's a list of men, uh, a list of the men of Antioch. Now, Jerusalem was the center of the church for the Jewish converts. But up in Syria, there was a town known as Antioch, and that was kind of the Gentile Christian headquarters. And Paul was always trying to get, bring them together so they were just really saw themselves as one in Christ, okay? Um, but the idea was that there was a strong church up in Antioch of Syria at this early in those early days. And um, Acts 13, 1 gives us a list of some of the elders that were um, in this church. And um, these elders sent Paul and Barnabas out, listen, on the first missionary journey, first mission of the church age, to take the gospel from the Middle East into eventually Europe and, of course, beyond. This was the first missionary journey authorized by these men. One of the men's names is Simeon. Simeon, who is called Niger. Simeon is another form of Simon. Niger is a word that means black and was the regular surname given to those with dark skin who came, listen, from Africa. Cyrene was in Africa, Simon's home. This could very well be the Simon that carried Jesus' cross to Golgotha. He not only got saved but became a leader in the church there in Antioch and was instrumental in bringing or launching the first missionary outreach into the Gentile world. Could it be, guys? And I, okay, maybe I am going a little too far, but could it, could it be possible that we Gentiles in this very room are some of the fruit of Simon of Cyrene's ministry? The gospel had to get to us somehow. It all started there in Jerusalem, worked its way up to Antioch, and then from Antioch was launched across the known world towards the west. Is it too far to imagine that maybe in some way one of these people that brought the gospel from Antioch into Gentile territory 
It was then picked up by other Gentiles who passed it along the gospel to other Gentiles and somehow in this very room we are been the recipients of the ministry of Simon. All because one day, to his bitter resentment, he was forced to carry the cross of a condemned criminal named Jesus. The lesson is this, guys. When you pick up the cross and follow Jesus, not only will your life be forever changed, it's going to impact and change those around you, including, and especially those who are closest to you, starting with your spouse and your children. Jesus said in John 12, he said, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, is buried in the ground and germinates, it stays a single grain of wheat. But if it dies, it produces much fruit, right? And guess what? He wasn't talking about farming. He was using a farming illustration to prove a point. It's great that you got saved. But if you don't die to self, you're like that grain of wheat that abides alone. Great, you're saved. The goal is to see others saved. And they're not going to get saved unless you first die to self. Because like a, a seed planted in the ground, it dies, it germinates, and produces a whole stalk of wheat with met, much fruit. That's how it is when he, we die to self and follow the Lord Jesus. He said in that very chapter, John 12, where, my, where I am, there my servant must be also. And for many people, that means the mission field. It means giving up a career to go somewhere to serve Jesus. That's dying to self. And that's how God uses you to produce much fruit. Guys, let me just say this. Jesus is still looking for Simon's, quote-unquote, who will take up his cross and follow him to Golgotha, to Calvary. To heed his call is to become a blessing to your generation, your young person especially. To heed his call is to become a blessing to your generation or in your home, in your church, in your world. Guys, the only way we can represent a crucified Christ is with a crucified life. And that means absolute surrender. Absolute surrender to the will of God. Guys, I'll just say this. The crucified life is a costly life. It's a costly life. Jesus said it. And somebody else has said salvation is free. But it will cost you everything to follow Jesus. And young people, can I just encourage you with this? Can I encourage you to fight the temptation to approach your Christianity with a what's-in-it-for-me mentality? That is the very opposite of dying to self. And a lot of churches promote that mentality. But not Jesus. And he's the only one that matters. Can I just say this? Don't just sing about the cross. People come to church and they sing about the cross and think that's enough. If churches even sing about the cross anymore. I heard one new young pastor of a church just got hired. The worship leader had been there for many years and led the congregation that morning in church. Had several songs about the cross and the blood of Christ. After the service, the pastor was a young man so furious, he went up to that worship leader and said, if you ever sing about the blood again, I'm going to fire you. That is barbaric. We want to keep things upbeat and positive in this church. So what he is saying is, we want a crossless church. And might I just say, a crossless church is a Christless church. So have fun with whatever you're doing on a Sunday morning. Because Jesus isn't there. He might be knocking on the door, let me in. But you know what? It's all about following him. And he died. And if I'm going to really follow him, I've got to follow him all the way to Mount Calvary where I have to die, to me, to myself, to my goals, to my desires. So don't just sing about the cross. Don't just wear a cross. Bear the cross. Bear the cross. Guys, I promise you I'm going to end with this. We are living in a selfish world. I don't have to tell you that. You know that. We are living in a selfish world populated by selfish people who are always trying to dominate and control others, to get them to do what they want them to do, to serve me. And even many of God's people have succumbed to the temptation to be selfish. And it is manifesting itself 
everywhere in the body of Christ in broken marriages, broken families, in broken churches, and we see it every day in our divided and broken country. Folks, the answer is taking up our crosses. Taking up our crosses, denying ourselves, and following Jesus, who gave us the ultimate example of selfless love. He did not love himself at all. He loved us so much. He went to the cross and died for us. And if he was here right now this morning, he would say, I loved you so much, I died for you. Can't you die for your spouse? Children, can't you die for your parents who are trying their best to raise you? And all you're doing is giving them grief? There's a lot going on in our world, and it's all, none of it, you know, practically none of it is of Jesus. But we can be a light in the darkness. We can, by God's grace, take up our cross every day and say, Lord, today give me the grace to de deny myself that I might live for you and show others your selfless, sacrificial love in any way I can. May God give us the grace to do that and let our light shine. Father, we thank you for your great love wherewith you loved us in sending your son to die for us. Lord Jesus, you said, no man takes my life from me. I give it freely for the sheep. And we thank you, Lord, for your great love wherewith you loved us. The love that came down from your glorious throne in heaven to be born lowly in a stable, to live in poverty, to grow up and then go about doing good and destroying the works of the devil by helping people and loving people, only to have many of those same people cry, crucify him, crucify him. And yet you didn't become bitter. You didn't turn your back. You went to that cross. And in love you died for those people who were not your friends. They were many of your enemies, but you still died for them, Lord. And we just pray you give us grace to die to self, to see our enemies brought to you. They need you. And we just ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. And please bring our women home safely. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.